0: morning so the late novelist david foster wallace once told this story at a commencement speech he said quote there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says morning boys how's the water and the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes what the heck is water Wallace then goes on to say that he is not trying to present himself as the wise older fish speaking to the younger fish, but that the point of the story is, quoting him, the most obvious important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. The most obvious important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. Now, in my experience, one of the reality is that we can't always see and don't like to talk about in the good old us of a is the impact our culture has upon us even as we say we intend to follow jesus the water of culture is always around us always impacting us sustaining us in some way but we are unaware of it sometimes we think we don't have culture we do It impacts the way we live our lives in the world, the way we live with one another as sisters and brothers in Christ, and right now, I don't know, over the past five decades or more, the impact of culture upon the church and upon individual would-be followers of Jesus has been largely negative, destructive, and unchristian. The churches to whom uh, 1 Peter is writing need to hear these things that are difficult. Our culture worships. The idols of power, violence, and fear. And these idols have seduced the church as well. These churches that Peter is writing to are in their own culture. In their own time, their own place. And that culture is influenced and impacted on a large scale by the Roman Empire, its authority, and its values. And these early followers of Jesus are swimming in it. For the past three weeks, we have been exploring Peter's instructions to his readers, people from several communities of faith that are scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Peter has used the ancient Roman house code to encourage his readers to live within cultural expectations and rules and to subvert those rules and that culture when it conflicts with following Jesus. But the subversion Peter calls for is all done in imitation of Christ, in imitation of Christ's way of life, and in imitation of Christ's death. The first verse of our passage, Peter lists five exhortations. And that verse in Greek only has nine words. With these nine words, Peter is calling upon the church to create its own culture. Peter is calling upon the church to create its own culture. Chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. So now we hear that Peter is no longer relying on those Roman house codes. That is only speaking to select groups of people within each household. Now he addresses everyone, all of you. Verse 8 is all about the community of faith and how they are to behave with one another. In what has gone before, Peter has given instructions on how to relate to unbelievers within one's one's own household. Now his instructions are about how we relate to one another as believers in the community of faith. In one short verse, he gives five exhortations and he piles them on top of one another. Together, these exhortations create a picture of a healthy Christian community. Every every translation I checked lists these five words as imperative statements. They tell us what to do. But they are participles. That is, they are not commands. They are are verbs turned into uh, adjectives. They are descriptors of the kind of people we are to become. They're not commands. And why does that matter? It matters because transformation, becoming fully formed disciples of Jesus Christ, is not about what we do or don't do. It's about who we become. Transformation, becoming fully formed disciples of Jesus, is not about what we do or don't do. It's about who we become, who we are becoming. And while it is true that we must strive to do these things, it is perhaps truer to say, That we must become the kind of people who do these things habitually. As if by second nature or first nature. The first one, be like-minded. Doesn't mean we all have to agree on everything. It means that in the things that matter most for people who come together under the name of Christ, we are like-minded. We are in harmony with one another on the things that matter most. The New Revised Standard Version translates it, have unity of spirit. The English Standard Version renders it, have unity of mind. So first on the list is our call to be of one mind. This is is what the Apostle Paul speaks of over in Philippians chapter 1. For several verses prior to this part, Paul is wrestling with whether or not his time is up if his imprisonment is going to end in his death or if he's going to survive and continue to live for the sake of the churches that he oversees and he seems by the time he gets to this verse i'm going to read for you he seems to get to the place that no i'm i'm pretty convinced i'm going to stick around for the sake of the churches he writes this in verses 27 and 28 whatever happens he means to himself whatever happens to me conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. The most important thing, Paul says, no matter what happens to him, the most important thing is that they conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. Then Paul defines this life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel as unity as standing firm in one spirit, as striving together as one. Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 says the same thing. My prayer is not for them alone, the original disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and I have loved them even as you have loved me. It's not merely that our unity gives credence to our message. It does. But it's not merely that our unity gives credence to our message. Our unity is the message. Our unity in Christ as the church, as the people of God, is the message. Our like-mindedness in the things that matter most proclaims and demonstrates that God has come to us in the flesh in the person of Jesus, and that God loves us. Be like-minded. Second, Peter instructs us to be sympathetic. As I was working on this sermon, I was reminded of something that uh, Brene Brown had talked about in her book Atlas of the Heart. She's not a big fan of sympathy, She sees sympathy as what she calls, quote, the near enemy of empathy. Sympathy is the near enemy of empathy. That is, sympathy looks like empathy but actually can work against it. Empathy is drawing near to someone to either feel what they feel or to understand their perspective and their emotions. Sympathy for her speaks of maintaining a safe distance while telling people you feel sorry for them. It's a showing of pity, but not much more than that. Now, if if, if sympathy were the only word in this verse, then I would say there's some truth to this, but it's not the only word. Peter piles on four more words on top of it to flesh it all out. These words, these five words, are to be taken as a whole, so sympathy can be a good thing, a starting place. The word sympathy, both in Greek and uh, in English, means, more literally, to suffer or feel pain with someone. Let's keep going to see where Peter is uh, leading us. Be like-minded, be sympathetic. Third, love one another. More literally, love as brothers. The Greek word there is philadelphus, from which we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. We are to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. Want to talk about family values? Let's talk about family values in the body of Christ. Those are the ones Jesus cares about. We might want to ask, yes, it's good to love our sisters and brothers in Christ. I'm not denying that, but what about the people outside of the church? What about the people that don't know Jesus? Aren't we supposed to love them too? Of course we are. This is what it means to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. But Peter isn't focusing on them in this letter that he's written to him. He's teaching them. He's focusing on them and us who need to become better in these things so that we can uh, better reach out to our neighbors if we grow in these five things we will be able to love our neighbors better and one of the most practical and accessible it's accessible to everyone one of the most practical and accessible ways to love those who are suffering in, or in pain is to listen to them to listen to them david Augsburger, professor of pastoral care and counseling at fuller theological seminary says this about listening to others he says being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. This is why we launched our ECC care team last year. We do not believe in suffering or grieving alone. We believe, as Peter instructs, that we are to be sympathetic toward one another in the body of Christ, the church, and we are to love one another deeply. I'm so thankful for our care team members, the training they undergo, the commitment they have to the ministry, and the intentionality with which they care for those in need. My my prayer, my hope, is that with each season, we'll add a few more members to that care team. And as always, if you find yourself in need of that kind of caring and presence and a listening ear from a care team member, please do not hesitate to let us know. You can reach out to us at ecclife.net slash care but any of us can do this with people in pain care team member or not any of us can do this with brothers and sisters in christ and with people outside of these walls we don't have to have all the answers we never will we only must listen and love and offer prayer and care to those who are in need be like-minded be sympathetic love one another, and now fourth, be compassionate. This is a strange word in the Greek. So strange that I want to show it to you and I want to pronounce it to you, and you'll see what I mean. splachnos. Politely, and most literally, strong intestines is what it means. Less politely, it means strong or good bowels, which doesn't sound compassionate at all. But this is the way people in that day and age, in that culture, this is the way they thought of compassion. It comes from our gut. It's intense. Sometimes we love other people by simply choosing to do the loving thing, even if we don't always feel it. We know this is the loving thing to do. But this is different. This is feeling it from the gut. This is a robust emotional response to someone in need. This is the word that Matthew used to describe Jesus when he was going from village to village, preaching and teaching and healing every disease and sickness. Matthew nine thirty six. we are told, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Same word. Because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was moved with compassion from the gut. You know, so often I think that Maybe I should speak for myself, but I, I think others could agree. I think that we have uh, fallen into this, this idea that Jesus was very stoic. Like he didn't show hardly any emotion at all. We have this picture of him Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I don't want to say, really? The God of the universe has come to us in the flesh. And when he encounters people in need, is it that hard to believe when he has compassion on them that it's from his gut? Can we not imagine that as a very emotional, spontaneous, and instinctive, compassionate response that Jesus might have? Can we not see him being that distraught, that motivated by something in his gut? Not quite so stoic. It's also the same word Jesus uses in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 20, 10, 33. When the Samaritan man uh, found the man that was robbed and beaten and left for dead along the side of the road, he had compassion on him. Same word. At the gut level. This was not really the right thing to do. He felt it. Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and finally, Be humble. Be humble. if if we are going to be like-minded with one another in this room, online, if we're going to have the unity of mind and spirit, if we're going to be sympathetic toward one another, if we're going to love one another, if we're going to be compassionate toward one another, humility will be essential. To be humble is to have a lowliness of mind about oneself. It's It's not that we think less of ourselves, but that we're not to think more of ourselves than we ought. We're we're not to think more of ourselves than we do others. In the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippian church, we can easily see how Peter must have borrowed many of these ideas from Paul in Philippians chapter 2. This is just verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Richard Foster and Brenda Quinn, in their book on humility refer to humility as the vanishing virtue. Said that when they wrote the book, the publisher wanted them to call it the lost virtue. He said, it's not lost. (laughs) There are still humble people out there, but it is vanishing. There may be pockets where this is not the case, but being humble is not really seen as a virtue by the culture at large. When asked in an interview how we learn to be humble, Richard Foster said that we learn it indirectly. That is, we become humble by serving other people. We become humble by serving other people. You've already heard us mention it earlier in the service. But a part of what it means to support the mission and ministry of ECC is not only to pray for us, not only to give financially, but to join us, to partner with us to serve alongside us in the various ministry opportunities we had. We had a tremendous show of people, a group of people show up to serve our children and families and a part of ECC and a part of our community during Summer XP this past week. And we need that kind of service, that kind of energy, that kind of partnership in every area of ministry. As we seek to strengthen and deepen the newer ministries and the ones we've had going on for a long time, as we seek to renew and transform our ecc culture an important part of that is going to be that we become a place where we all contribute where we all partner with the ministry and mission where we all serve that's not only important for our mission and ministry here at ecc it's important for our own spiritual formation as we contribute As we partner together in the ministry and mission, as we serve, the mission is transformed, and so are we. We become more humble in our relationships with God, in our relationships with the community we serve, in our relationships with one another. Humility was not a virtue in first century Rome. It was seen as a weakness. To be humble was to be a loser. And to be sure, while humility, humility is still honored to some degree in our culture more often, it is brushed aside today as, as weak, at worst, irrelevant, at best. Humble people don't get things done. Humble people aren't seen as important. Humble people don't get elected. Jesus, Paul, and Peter, and the whole biblical witness want us to know that humility matters. and We get there in part by serving others. Jesus tells us in Matthew 20 that whoever wants to be great must serve others. Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, be humble. And then Peter shifts the focus outward to society in verse 9. All of that was one verse. Now he shifts. Verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. What blessing? are we going to hear it? I don't know, but I don't want to miss it whatever it is. There's something fundamental, there's something foundational about this act of blessing those who curse us. Loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, turning the other cheek. The apostle Paul agrees in Romans chapter 12 verses 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If we can grow in what it means to be a community of Jesus followers who are like-minded, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble toward one another, we will better be able to repay evil with blessing out in the world. Peter then reinforces this by quoting from Psalm 34. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If we want a good life, We do these things. We speak good of others, not evil. We turn from evil and we do good. We seek peace and pursue it. Friends, the water we swim in is laden with things that run contrary to Peter's exhortations of the passage. And those things, as David Foster Wallace said, those things are most obvious and most important and they're hard to see and difficult to talk about. But Jesus calls us to live differently than that. Jesus calls us to swim upstream. And if we're going to do that, we have to see these things and we have to talk about them. Our culture idolizes power, violence, and fear. Our culture thrives on disunity, hostility, hatred, apathy, and pride. The river of our culture flows unrelentingly toward retaliation, contempt, and war. But we who know God we who seek to follow Jesus and pursue God's purposes in the world, we are called to become the kind of people who will swim upstream against all of that. Now, many of you watch the streaming series on the life of Jesus and his disciples, the Chosen. If so, you are familiar with this graphic that moves throughout the opening credits of that show. It begins... With one fish swimming upstream against the flow, it is later joined by another and another until by the end there are 13, Jesus and the 12 disciples. The call of First Peter is to swim upstream. It is not to fight the culture. It is not to fight the culture, but to become a community of people who live by a different worldview and walk in a different way in the world. It has become a people, a community who demonstrate the life, uh, what life looks like in the kingdom of God. And that is how God will use us to change the culture and to win people to faith and to bring people into the kingdom. We do this by trusting in Christ, by contemplating our own journey with Christ, by listening to God's spirit, repenting of our sin and turning and going in a new direction. If you've been here for a while, you know that we have three values, three touchstones at ECC welcome, transformation, and presence. Transformation. And by that, we mean that we are both transformed and ever transforming more and more into the image of Christ. Christ in us as individuals and Christ in us as a community. The temptation is to come to worship to listen to a sermon, to take a few notes, and to think that if we've heard it, if we've understood it, if we've made a few notes, if we've studied it, we've done it. But the work is not done until and unless what we have taken into our heads and put into our notebooks begins to transform our lives and our hearts and our relationships with God and with others. And so to that end, We are going to be more intentional about introducing and engaging spiritual practices in worship. So this morning, uh, Kate Cogswell, our Director of Women's Ministry and Spiritual Formation, is going to lead us in a spiritual practice as our collective response to God's Word this morning. So Kate, I'll invite you to come on up.
1: So this morning, we have heard the scripture read. We've, um, Pastor Stacy has taught us through the word, and now I want to invite you to join me in prayerfully engaging with the passage um, through the soul training practice of the examine. Now typically the examine is a practice to review a particular time period with God, noticing where we have moved towards him, Where we might have moved away from Him, and what invitations God is extending to us in our walk with Him. But it also is a practice that can be used as a way to prayerfully engage with Scripture. And that's what we're going to do together today. So I invite you um, to take a deep breath, to settle into a posture. uh, Close your eyes if you're comfortable with that or not. So that we can be open to what God would have to um, speak to us today through this passage. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you invite us to come as we are, to trust you to meet us there. And as we sit with you now, would you use your word, not just to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. Give us hearts to hear what you would speak to us today. In the past week, where have I experienced unity? Where have I contributed to unity? Where have I disrupted unity? In the past week, where have I experienced sympathy? Where have I journeyed alongside someone? Where did I turn the other way instead of entering in with empathy? In the past week, when did I feel loved? Where did I love well? Where did I miss an opportunity to show your love? In the past week, where have I felt compassion rise in my body? Where did I squelch feelings of compassion? In the past week, where have I thought too much of myself? Where have I thought too little of who God created me to be? God are you inviting me to serve to move more toward humility in these last few moments show us, show me one thing, one way I can participate with the Holy Spirit having these characteristics formed in me God, would you continue to transform us by your love and help us to be ever-transforming into Christ's image in us as individuals and as a community. Amen.